Let's read Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be beginning in verse 17. Malachi approaches the people of God and says, quote, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the day of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Christ, would you be magnified as we just sang? Would you be magnified and exalted uh, as we study this word with the simplicity and the purity of your good news, the gospel, the announcement of Jesus Christ? Would would you be exalted and, and would that come forth clearly, your gospel, Lord Jesus? Would you help us to see that you, in fact, are the God who rules over everything and you will one day come again, just as you came at first, to bring justice And in order to bring forgiveness of sins, we look forward to that day when you will be made manifest and all of creation will worship you and be purified in your sight. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this last week, uh, many of you, you might have heard the death of this man. His name was Harold Kushner. Harold Kushner was an author of over a dozen books. His most famous work and his most widely read book was written following the death of his firstborn son in 1988. You might recognize the title. It's the title, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? If you've read that book, you know that what Kushner does is he wrestles with this idea of evil in the world philosophically, having seen the death of his firstborn child, having witnessed his son's last breath, he couldn't help but ask the question, why, God? Where are you? Why do bad things happen? Why is there such injustice and hurt in the world? If you are all powerful, if you are all good, then why is there evil? Why do we struggle along in this world? I remember when I first kind of wrestled with this question. I actually wasn't a Christian yet, but I remember vaguely thinking some of the things that Kushner was responding to. And it happened when I was 16 years old. My friend Chase Miller, uh, he was over at another one of my friend's house, and, you know, he was going for a drive, and uh, he got in the car with a drunk driver who he didn't know was drunk, and Chase 
This driver and another one of my friends, his name was Alex Levesay, they were driving down Wadsworth Boulevard going north at about 60 miles an hour. A light turned red, all the cars stopped, but the car that Chase was in, driven by this drunk driver, swerved to avoid these cars, hit a pole, and Chase went through the windshield. And I can remember watching CBS that night, and I remember seeing Chase's mom, this woman who I had admired, this woman who I loved, seeing this scene that her son was involved in, and she falls to the ground, weeping in immense pain and grief because she had just lost her firstborn child. And I remember asking, why, God? Where are you? Why this injustice? How, how does the criminal live? The criminal lived in this instance. How does the criminal live? Why does he survive? And then why does my friend lose his life? Why does my friend's family have to live the rest of their life in grief and pain? And we all have questions like that, don't we? If you've lived in the world for more than 15 minutes, you probably have questions like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? How could we see so much injustice and evil and not ask those questions? Well, if you look at Malachi, it's not surprising that during his time, people were having conversations back and forth. They were having conversations with one another, questioning God in the same way. You remember Malachi, he's prophesying to the people of Israel. It's the year 450 B.C. And these people had witnessed a lot. They had gone through a lot. If you just took a snapshot, they were living in 450. If you back up just 200 years and you take a snapshot of those 200 years, the people of Israel, you'd recognize they had seen a lot unfold before their eyes. They'd seen their once great kingdom deteriorate from the inside out because of volatile leadership. Kings like Manasseh, was so engaged in idolatry and immorality that he actually sacrificed one of his own children as a human sacrifice to a false god named Molech. But then they had seen good kings come after him, kings like Josiah who would eradicate idolatry, he'd reinstate God's law, reform worship in the Jerusalem temple, abolish the worship of false gods like Baal and Asherah and Molech, but then a new king would arise, volatile leadership, and they would plummet once again. And then because of this, Jerusalem, we've seen this and we've talked about this over the past four weeks, Jerusalem, sieged by the Babylonian Empire, was eventually torn down to the ground. All of the city was turned into an ash heap, including the temple, burned to the ground and left in the dust. Friends and family members of people who were in Jerusalem, they were carried away into exile where they would be for 70 years. They had seen a lot. But maybe the worst of all, one prophet, his name was the prophet Ezekiel, he had this vision of the presence of God, of the presence of God which dwelt in the temple. He had this vision that God's presence actually lifted out of the temple and departed from the temple, departing from the people of God. He said he was sitting by this canal as he was in exile and he saw this vision. He says he saw the glory of the Lord and it went out from the threshold of the house, that's the temple, and stood over the cherubim, these fiery, winged, angelic creatures. 
And he says, the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes, and they went out. And he says he sees the presence of the Lord, the glory of God, leave the temple and depart east as the temple then is desecrated and torn to the ground. So these people, they'd seen a lot unfold before their eyes. You see that, right? They'd seen God even leave them and seemingly abandon them because of their sin and injustice that had defiled Israel. But once God's people, they, they returned from exile in the year 520 BC, there were these prophets that came, prophets a lot like Malachi, and they spoke of a time when God would return, his presence would come back, a time when God would then restore everything that they had seen destroyed. One prophet, his name's Haggai, he said God's glory would once again return to the temple. That was a promise. Haggai also said that God would shake the kingdoms of the world, kingdoms like Babylon that had destroyed them. He would shake the kingdoms of the world and establish a new kingdom for the people and a new king to reign over them. Zechariah spoke of a time of coming widespread prosperity. But by the year 450, after this snapshot had concluded, it seemed like none of these prophecies were coming true. In fact, it seemed like the opposite was the case. Instead of prosperity, they had crop failure and drought and famine. Their new kingdom with a new king seemed to not be coming to fruition either. They were still under the rule of the Persian Empire. And to make matters worse, God's glory, his, his glorious presence, had still not come back and been made visible in the temple. And they had rebuilt the temple almost 70 years before. Where's God? Where is he? So the people started asking, exchanging words back and forth, conversations, questioning God. Where's God? When's he going to return? Why doesn't he make things right? Why does he allow wicked, idolatrous people like the Persians to have prosperity? And we're here suffering. If we're his people, why all this evil and injustice around us? And here's what you have to understand. And you have to understand this if you're going to read this passage right. These conversations, these words going back and forth, questioning God, they've actually crossed a line. They've crossed a line. See, in the Bible, God invites questioning. He invites his people to ask questions about justice and evil and his presence in the world. In fact, you see it in other prophets, like the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk is writing, and he asks a lot of these questions, questions that are on our heart. He says, oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never seems to go forth. For the wicked surround righteous people so justice goes forth perverted. Jesus himself asked these kind of questions. Remember when Jesus was being crucified? The first thing that Jesus says as he's giving up his life on the cross, is, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? God invites this kind of questioning. Because you're asking it to God. You're asking God and wrestling with God about injustice. But that's not the kind of questioning that's going on in Malachi's time. <laughs> no, during the time of Malachi, Israel's crossed this line. They're no longer asking legitimate questions to God. 
Instead, their questions begin to take the form of accusations and criticisms behind the back of God and saying criticisms about God when he's not around. So Malachi, speaking on behalf of God, says to Israel, you're back and forth, your questions, they've crossed a line. In fact, he says, verse 17, back to our text, he says, your questions with all these, this back and forth, he says, you have wearied, you have wearied the Lord with your words. I uh, coach baseball with uh, my uh, one of our elders here, his name's Cal Douglas, and we're coaches uh, for our baseball team for about eight, nine, ten-year-olds. And uh, it's really interesting, you know, when you run a practice for kids that age, their focus isn't exactly there. And uh, this happens every time. It's gotten a little bit better this season, but, you know, about five minutes into practice, the first kid will come up and say, is it time for a water break? (laughs) Fifteen minutes later, another kid will come up, I'm thirsty. Then 10 minutes later, when will we have a water break? And then another kid comes up just one minute after that. Can we take a water break? Meanwhile, I look back and there's Coach Cal. He's drinking out of his Dasani water bottle, tempting all the kids, right? And with all of this, you're just trying to get one drill in and this wearies you. You're exasperated for the incessant demands for water. Finally, can we have our water? And you're wearied by it. Are you going to... Continue asking this question? Malachi is looking to the people of Israel and he's saying, you have wearied the Lord with your words. God is wearied by the back and forth. He's wearied by the criticism and the accusations, the questions that are not really questions for God, but strikes against God's character behind his back. God is wearied by this. And Israel, as they've done throughout Malachi, right? They snap back at God. And they reply to God, snapping in kind of this criticism, saying, how? How how have we wearied him? Malachi, we haven't wearied God. And Malachi says, no, look, look at your conversations. You say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or you ask, where is the God of justice? You can imagine the conversation going on, right? One person in Israel, he comes up to another group of people and says, isn't God so good? Isn't God so good? Look at all that he's done for us. We're his covenant people. He's placed his covenant love upon us. And you can imagine this group of people responding, saying, oh yeah, if God's so good, if God's so good, then why are the ones who break the rules in the world, why are they the ones who have it so easy? There's songs written about this, aren't there? Write that. Nice guys finish last? Why do the bad guys always get the girl in the movies? If God's such a good and loving God, why do people like the Persians have prosperity and ease? We're struggling. We're suffering. They don't even believe in the true God. They're flourishing. Look at their kingdom. How can you say God is good and allows that to happen? We're the good ones. All the nations that live around us are in comfort. If God's so good... Why do the evil prosper? No, don't say God is good. And the other guy, he responds by saying, well, God is just. Don't worry, he will bring justice. He will bring justice one day and all will be made right. And the people snap back, (laughs) where's the God of justice? Where's the God of justice? We've been back for nearly 100 years and God hasn't brought a lick of justice to us. 
If God is so just and all-powerful, then why do bad things happen to good people like us? Where is the God of justice? Don't bring that talk in here. You see how they've crossed the line? This isn't Habakkuk. Oh, Lord. Lord, how long? I'm crying for help. You don't hear me. Where are you, God? That's, That's a legitimate question to God, asking him about evil and the presence of God in the world spoken to God himself. No, they've crossed a line questioning God in criticism. Where's the God of justice? God isn't good. He allows the evil to flourish. These are accusations and criticisms about God's character, not spoken to God himself, but carried on behind his back. And we all run this risk. We all run this risk. It's easy for our questions for God Legitimate questions offered to him in prayer and sincere questioning to cross a line where they no longer are honest questions, but rather they're criticisms of God. In fact, the Bible calls them blasphemy. And rightfully, that kind of criticism against God's character wearies God. (sighs) After all, just, just look back through Malachi. This is oracle number four. If anyone can be accused of injustice and evil, it's not God. It's the people of Israel, isn't it? Just look at Israel. Uh, Week number one, oracle number one, the people have consistently doubted God's love for them. Consistently done it. Then in oracle number two, people of Israel, they... They have brought polluted sacrifices into the temple in their worship and thought, ah, no big deal. God God doesn't care about polluted sacrifice. We can worship him any way we want. Oracle number three, the people who who had regularly worshipped idols, breaking the first and second commandment, this polluted worship. Oracle number three again, the people had been unfaithful to God and they'd married foreign wives as Chad told us last week and worshiped their gods. And this is a people who've rejected God's desires for marriage, divorcing their wives without second thought. Ah, I know God says don't commit adultery, but I just can't get along in this marriage anymore. I, I just can't. Time to get a new one. This is a people defiled by sin. They're filled with evil. They're filled with injustice. And now that they're struggling and suffering because of their evil, what's the first thing they, they say? It's God's fault. God's fault. Where's the God of justice? He doesn't exist. God isn't good. If he's so good, then why do bad things happen to good people like us? It's interesting. This story sounds familiar, isn't it? Well, it sounds a lot like my story. I'm sure it sounds a lot like your story. But if you go back to the story that begins the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve, isn't this the exact same pattern that plays out? God creates the Garden of Eden, this great world. He places Adam and Eve in this garden. He says everything is very good. And then Adam and Eve, they commit the first grave evil of human history. God said, do not eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. They take from the tree. They eat from the one tree that God had forbidden. They eat from it, breaking his commandment, breaking God's covenant. And Adam, with blood on his hands having just committed this great evil, what's the first response that Adam gives to God? He says, it's your fault, God. (laughs) It's your fault. Adam 
is approached by God and God says, what have you done? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's your fault. The woman that you gave me, God, she made me do it. That's why there's evil in the world. You could have stopped it and you didn't. Case closed. Not exactly. (laughs) Here's a man who just deliberately disobeyed God and evil and he has the audacity to criticize and accuse God for his evil. And God's wearied by this. So here are the people of Israel, just like Adam, who are filled with rampant evil, defiled by sin, and God is accused of not being good. Israel's filled with injustice, and they're saying, God isn't just. Where's the God of justice? So here's what God does. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, God responds. And in verse 1, he says, do you want the God of justice? Do you want the God of justice? Then behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. It's interesting here, to this problem of evil, or this question of suffering, or God's presence in the world, God doesn't answer in the way that we expect. The people are asking, why do bad things happen to good people? And we'd expect God to kind of answer philosophically because that's what we want. We want God to explain how evil, his goodness, and justice relate to one another. We expect God to say, well, let me explain. Let me explain here. Let me explain how evil and my goodness relate to one another. Let me show you how I'm going to bring perfect justice. That's not what he does. It's interesting. That's what Harold Kushner does. Remember Harold Kushner, the one who wrote, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People?, In that book, he works through this problem of evil philosophically. He asks the question, if God is all good and God is all powerful, then why does evil exist in the world? And as he wrestles through this good question, his answer philosophically doesn't exactly reflect what Malachi says here. He concludes, if evil exists, then God must not be all powerful. Because if he's all good, Surely, if he was all-powerful, he would eradicate evil. So he says, as, you know, as, as good as God is, he's just not powerful enough to stop evil. God can't bring perfect justice in our world, so he doesn't even really try. He doesn't have the power to do so. In fact, Kushner was interviewed when he was about 77 years old. Uh, he died at the age of 86. But he was asked by an interviewer, has your view of God changed since you wrote that book? in 1988, and he says, no, absolutely not. He said, quote, my sense is, God and I came to an accommodation with each other after a couple of decades, where he's gotten used to the things that I'm not capable of, and I've come to terms with the things he's not capable of. Answering philosophically, that's how Kushner responds to evil. God is good, but he's unable to stop evil. He can't bring perfect justice to the world. But that's not what God says through Malachi. Look again at verse 1. God says, not philosophically, here's the answer to the problem of evil. No, he says, look at the future. He says, do you want to see the God of justice? Behold, verse 1, a day is coming when I will come to visit you directly and you will see my justice on display. He says in verse 1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The presence of God which departed from Israel will again come, and he, in his coming, will bring justice. But before he does, he says he's going to send a messenger before him. 
And this was common in the ancient Near East. Usually when a king would ride into a new city or he would come back after fighting a battle to his home country, he would send messengers who would go before him and announce the coming of this king to the inhabitants of these cities. And God had sent messengers before. If you look through the Old Testament, God had sent messengers before prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and all the others. God throughout the history of Israel had sent messengers, but this messenger is going to be different, Malachi says. He says, this messenger will be different because after this future messenger, there will be no more. After Malachi, there will be one more messenger, one messenger only, because once this messenger comes, the Lord himself will come and he will return. And if you want to see the God of justice, behold, the day is coming when it will come and his justice will be on full display. Everybody will see it. But then Malachi says something that nobody expected. Look again. If God were to come as a God of justice, he had this expectation or Israel had this expectation that he would come and he'd destroy the sins of the Persians or the Ammonites, all the surrounding nations. God would come and judge those people around Jerusalem and Judea. But that's not where the God of justice will go first. Look again at verse one. God says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming declares the Lord of hosts. The people of Israel were criticizing God. Where's the God of justice? And Malachi responds, oh, he's going to return. And the first place that he's coming is to the temple of God. He's coming for you. People of God, the justice of God begins with you. Anybody ever seen that movie, The Princess Bride? <laughs> I used to watch that when I was sick growing up. And if you're not familiar with the movie, it's about this story of three pirates who steal a princess. And they steal this princess in order to start a war between these two different kingdoms. And as they steal this princess, a masked man, a masked man is kind of pursuing these pirates and he's trying to steal the princess back because he's actually in love with the princess. And this masked man is making his way set through ev by every trap that the pirates had set. So they go through, you know, this water that's infested with these terrible creatures. And then kind of the final trap that they set is they climb up this massive 100, 200, 300 foot rock wall and they start climbing up it because one of the, you know, pirates is this huge giant who can just pull himself up by a rope and he's carrying all the other pirates and the princess with him. But then this masked man is just as strong as the giant. So he starts climbing up, but he doesn't have the rope and he's halfway up. And every time that this masked man completes one of these obstacles and defies all the traps set by the pirates, one of the guys looks to the other, one of the pirates looks to the other and says, inconceivable. And he's, he's climbing up this wall and finally he looks down and, you know, for like a fourth time he says, what? He's making his way all the way up the rock wall? Inconceivable. One of the other pirates, his name's Inigo Montoya, he's a Spaniard, he looks at the other pirate and says, you know, you keep using that word. I don't think you know what that really means. That's precisely what's happening in Israel. They keep saying, where's the God of justice? And Malachi responds, I don't think you know what that means. You want the God of justice to visit you? When the God of justice comes, he's coming in a way nobody expects. He's, he's not coming to judge the nations first. No, he's coming first 
to the temple of God. He's coming to judge you. And when his glorious presence returns, when the king comes to his temple, the temple will not be filled with peace. No, it will be filled with the judgment of God. That's why Malachi says in verse 2, but when he comes, but when the Lord of justice comes, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? See, Israel had fallen into this trap. It's a trap we fall into. They fell into this trap of thinking we're good. The nations and world around us, they're bad. We're the people of justice. It's the Persians and the Ammonites, the Moabites. They're the people of injustice. But Malachi says, no, no, no. When the God of justice comes, nobody can stand. Nobody can stand before his justice. You keep calling for the God of justice. I don't think you know what that means. We all fall into this trap of thinking evil's out there in the world, not in us. We're pure, they're defiled. In fact, if the world kind of acted a little bit more like us, who thinks that the world would be just that much better? Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a Nobel Prize winner. He got detained in a Soviet labor camp. And after several years in this labor camp, he realized that there was this hatred starting to grow inside of him. It was this hatred starting to grow in his heart. He began to, he began to hate his captors, the Soviet soldiers, and he started to hate communism. And he began dreaming about a day when he could get revenge. He could escape and plot the murder of those soldiers, and plot the downfall of socialism and communism. And he thought on that day, finally, justice would come. And when those people were eradicated over there and judged, everything would finally be better. Finally. This way of thinking, it, it's not common just in Soviet Russia. It wasn't just in Israel. We, we fall into this same trap. It's common today. If you watch 20 minutes of cable news, you see this trap everywhere. Whether it's syndicates on the left... You watch MSNBC, the problem with the world is conservatives. The problem with society is the rich. Oh, the problem, oh man, the problem with our country is all those greedy capitalists who oppress the poor. They're all gathering in the former Enron headquarters right now. <laughs> Alternative, alternatively, if you watch syndicates on the right, same thing. Oh, the problem with the world is liberals. Right? The problem with society is the snowflake college student. The problem with our country is covert socialism infiltrating our institutions. They're probably meeting right now. The problem is not us. Never is us. No, we're virtuous. We're on the side of angels. We're pure. They are defiled. The evil ones are over there. Solzhenitsyn, back to him, you know, he realized that in this wrestling, he had fallen into this trap way of thinking. This way of thinking that sees the world as us pure, them defiled, us good, them evil, us just, them unjustice, Solzhenitsyn would eventually write, quote, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But it's not that simple. Because the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. In other words, evil's not just in the world out there. No, it's in us. We're evil. We're unjust. And here's Israel criticizing God, saying, where's the God of justice? And Malachi says, friend, you don't know what that means. You don't know what that means. The Lord of justice 
will return. And on that day, do you think that you can endure the day of his coming? Do you think that you can stand before the Lord of justice on your own merit? When the Lord of justice comes, do you think that you can stand? Let me give, or let me get a show of hands. If God returned in justice and gave us everything that we deserved and gave us what is fair, who here wants to stand before the Lord on that day? Just me? <laughs> no, we all know that God, if he gave us what we deserved, strict justice, no one could stand. It's fascinating, you know, some 400 years after Malachi, God brought to fulfillment everything that Malachi, everything that Malachi had prophesied here. After Malachi, there was one more messenger and one messenger only. And this messenger prepared the way for the Lord himself. In fact, 400 years after Malachi, the first gospel ever written by a man named Mark opened his gospel with these words, directly quoting Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And what do you know? The messenger named John the Baptist begins his ministry by preparing the way before the Lord himself, the Lord of justice, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just as Malachi said. I was asked, you know, why, why do we study Malachi? Why do we go from Mark to Malachi? It's for this reason. So that we could see Jesus did not come in a vacuum or a void. No, he is the God of justice who came back to the people of God in human flesh. Israel's accusing God, where's your justice? God says, do you want the Lord of justice? You'll see him. Look to the future. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you see clearly what Malachi unfolds in just the brief time we have remaining is that when Jesus, the God of justice, the Son of God himself, comes to carry out justice, he will do so in two distinct stages, in two distinct comings. First, in his first coming, Malachi says, the Christ will return to Israel. And when he returns, he will expose the sins of his people and then refine his people from evil. Verse 3, he says, when this God of justice comes, verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. You see, during the time of Malachi, silversmiths and metallurgists, what they would do is they'd be working at these foundries with these intense heats, burning, melting precious metals like gold and silver at intensely hot temperatures. And these metallurgists, they'd sit by the kiln and they'd look at the color. They'd look at the color of all this molten metal. And they would see rising up oftentimes out of this metal would be this stuff called dross. And you could tell what it was by its color. And what the metallurgist would do or the refiner would do is scrape the top and he would remove this dross from this molten metal so that through this process, all of the impurities of the gold, all of the impurities of the silver would finally be removed. And at the end, you would have one pure lump sum of silver. Same thing with a fuller. Did you notice he mentioned this fuller? A fuller was a laundry who would use kind of this special bowl and he would use this special soap. A fuller is just a launderer. And what he would do is he'd fill this, this bowl with rocks 
and then water, and then this soap called lye, and he would pour it into this, this bowl, and he would stomp on all, all these clothes, these garments that were defiled and soaked with stains and had dirt all over them. And through this process of stepping on these stones and moving them around with the, the garments and the lye working through it, all of that impurity would fall to the bottom and it would be removed from their clothes. Here's what was so remarkable about this. Is Malachi is saying is that when Jesus, the God of justice, the Son of God, first comes in the wake of John the Baptist, he will come in a way nobody expects. He will expose the sins of the people, just like, just like a refiner exposes the impurities in gold and silver. And when you look at the life of Jesus, that's exactly what he did. When Jesus, the God of justice, came to earth, the response of the people of God, the people of Israel, was not to rejoice Right? They didn't come and say, finally, the God of justice has come. No, in their evil, in their injustice, in their impurity, what they did with the God of justice was crucify him and hand him over to Roman authorities. In 33 AD, outside of Jerusalem, the true evil and justice of humanity, the people of God included, was exposed because they showed what they really wanted was a life without the God of justice. They didn't want God to bring justice to the land. No, they wanted to crucify the God of justice. But simultaneously and unexpectedly, even though God, in being crucified on the cross, was exposing the defilement of sin, he was simultaneously removing the dross of human sin, refining his people for all those who have faith in him. In his crucifixion, God's justice is displayed and his people are left refined and purified from the sin that defiles them. Where is the God of justice? Well, he's hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem, removing the sins of his people like a refiner's fire, taking justice in their place. And what makes this so important is because Malachi says that's the first coming of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus when he will come and purify, refine, and expose. And all those who trust in him will be removed, have sin removed from them and cast away from them. But Malachi says a second day is coming. A second coming of the God of justice. Verse 5, he says, then, after this first coming, Jesus will return. And he says, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Where's the God of justice? Well, he's coming. And in fact, this table here demonstrates both comings of Jesus, who is this messenger of the covenant, who is the Lord himself, the God of justice. See, Jesus in his first coming gathered with his disciples, men who were filled with evil, filled with impurity, filled with sin. Jesus gathered around them and celebrating this Passover meal, he gave them bread which represented his body, which would be given for them as an offering and a sacrifice for justice so that in his death, they might not face the strict justice of God and also gave them a cup 
which showed them that his blood would be shed so that they would be purified from their sins. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, broke it, and he gave it to his disciples who were seated around him and said, take, eat, this is my body, the body of the God of justice given for you to be forgiven of all your sins. And in like manner, after they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, And as the messenger of the covenant, Jesus said, this cup was the blood of the new covenant shed in his blood for all of their sins to purify them, expose their sin and remove it far from them as far as the east is from the west. If you recognize you are a person who has evil inside you, if you recognize you're a person who is sinful and needs a savior to refine you, to purify you, to remove your sin, then this meal is for you. Jesus says that in the eating of this bread and the drinking of his cup, not only do we declare that he is the God of justice who took justice in our place, but he's also the God of justice who will one day come again and remove all sin from the world that is so polluted with injustice caused by our sin. So if that's you, come and eat. Come and eat taste and see that the Lord is good.